Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Melissa Sue Platt was born in Houston, Texas on February 3, 1977 to parents Michael and Marion Mims. When she was 16 years old, she moved to Jacksonville, North Carolina to live with her older sister Maria and her three children and babysat her nieces and nephews while her sister worked. Melissa was described as cheerful and bubbly and loved the race car driver Jeff Gordon and would later have two daughters of her own. In 2008, 31-year-old Melissa's life would drastically change when she began dating a man by the name of Joey Tindall. Despite Joey having a history of domestic violence, Melissa moved in with him in Greenville, North Carolina. Soon after, she and Joey began drinking heavily and abusing drugs. Concerned with her alcoholism, Melissa contacted drug treatment centers for help and sought rehabilitation. However, her attempt to seek help was met with aggressive opposition from Joey. He allegedly threatened to break up with her if she went into rehab and manipulated her to consume alcohol daily. Until this point, Melissa's family had been unaware of how bad the relationship really was. The abuse got so bad that one day, Joey allegedly shot Melissa in her upper left chest. However, when she went to the hospital, she claimed she had actually shot herself, likely covering for Joey out of fear for her own life. Then in early October of 2008, Joey allegedly beat Melissa to the brink of death and then left her wrapped in a blanket on a bed for six days without any medical attention. Before this, Melissa and her mother Marion spoke regularly on the phone, so when she stopped answering calls, she became immediately concerned. Initially, Joey answered the calls, but made excuses for Melissa not picking up the calls herself. Marion then requested a welfare check on her daughter. On October 8, 2008, Melissa was found at her home in Pink Hill, North Carolina, barely alive, lying in her own urine and feces, naked from the waist down. She was quickly life-flighted to a hospital and underwent an immediate craniotomy. She was missing teeth, bruised from head to toe, had two black eyes, her jaw was broken on both sides, her brain was bleeding, she had a blood clot, and had strangulation marks on her neck. Due to the brain bleed, she was unresponsive. Paramedics would say that they had never seen someone in such a horrible condition. After surgery, she was admitted to the ICU. After a few days, Melissa finally opened her eyes and could speak, saying she had been in a horrible car accident. Joey claimed the injuries resulted from her falling in the bathroom. Melissa then changed her story to go along with Joey's story. However, doctors disputed this, saying there was no way she could have sustained such horrible injuries from a fall as he described. During the craniotomy, doctors found she had old head injuries, showing that she had clearly been abused in the past. 
For nine weeks, she remained in ICU until, sadly, she passed away from her injuries on December 17, 2008. Her family says that before she passed, she finally told them the truth. She said Joey dragged her out of the house by her neck, threw her on the ground, and hit her over the head with something. After this, she was held hostage and forced by Joey to drink alcohol with a straw so that she would continue to stay intoxicated. Joey's ex-wives and children also revealed that he was physically abusive towards them as well. Joey changed his story more than once, but the idiot detectives bought this story and felt he was a good guy. Another story Joey told was that Melissa had fallen into a gap in their washroom and asked him to give her alcohol as she was an alcoholic. This claim is very unbelievable because not even a child could have fit in the gap that he claims Melissa fell into. Plus, how could it possibly bruise the entire body of a female adult? Even though all the evidence pointed toward Joey, he was never charged with any crimes. In January 2009, Melissa's mother, Marion, sent a letter to the district attorney, Branson Vickery, and the case was reinvestigated. Marion was told she would be informed when the investigation concluded and a decision was made, but they failed to contact her. Marion had to call numerous times before finally speaking to someone in District Attorney Vickery's office. The person told Marion that Joey wouldn't be charged at the time. After this phone call, the Attorney General finally called her back, but he told her even though he believed Joey did this to her, he didn't feel he had enough evidence to take it to trial. She asked him if he would get charged with criminal neglect for leaving her there for six days, and he said that's only a misdemeanor, and if he were charged with that, he would probably only get probation. He also said if any evidence of murder came out, they wouldn't be able to charge him with anything else. Melissa's family has spent the last 15 years trying to get justice for her, but they've now been told the case is inactive. In a gross mockery of justice, the police say that Joey is innocent and displayed perfect behavior and compliance with the authorities. Meanwhile, Melissa's family continues to fight to hold Joey accountable for his alleged crimes. Finally, in 2021, Melissa's death certificate was changed from undetermined to homicide due to the cause of death listed as assault and closed head injury. Numerous professionals, such as chief medical examiners and forensic pathologists, have signed their names backing up the homicide ruling. However, as of 2023, Joey has never been charged with Melissa's murder and remains a free man. Please do me a favor and go sign the change.org petition, which currently has over 100,000 signatures. Janice K. Sanders was born on September 27, 1950, and moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to the Michiana region in the early 1960s. At the age of 17, Janice married her high school sweetheart. Her love of family was her pride and joy, and she excelled at her work as a waitress at different local restaurants in the city of South Bend. She always took pride in her appearance and loved cooking, sewing, and stenciling. Sadly, in 1973, her marriage to her high school sweetheart ended, but she still remained a devoted mother to her two children, James and Dina. At the age of 24, Janice worked as a waitress at Pete's Patio Restaurant in Niles, Michigan. She had just ended a tumultuous relationship with her boyfriend, Gerald Libertowski, who went by Jerry, and moved back in with her parents in South Bend, Indiana. 
Close to midnight on July 20th, 1975, her estranged boyfriend, Jerry, followed her out of the restaurant to the back parking lot where her car was parked. While he and Janice were talking in the parking lot, witnesses would say that Jerry was acting like a madman and that Janice looked scared. This was the last time she was ever seen alive. When Janice didn't come home that night, her parents and ex-husband knew something bad had happened because they said she would have never left without her children. Her family then reported her missing the very next day. On the day she was reported missing, the police questioned Jerry and noticed he had facial injuries, which witnesses hadn't noticed the night before. About six weeks later, Janice's 1974 AMC Matador was found parked at the Holiday Inn in the 900 block of South 11th Street in Niles, but there was no sign of Janice. Meanwhile, police discovered Jerry was connected to another missing woman in South Bend. His previous girlfriend, 21-year-old Janice Langs, went missing two years earlier in 1973 after leaving work and breaking up with him just like Janice. In 1976, Jerry was charged with both Janice and Janice's presumed murder. In April 1976, parts of Janice's 1972 Mercury Montego was found in a garage behind a burned-out farmhouse in Elwood, Indiana. It had been disassembled with a cutting torch. Janice's wallet and a pill bottle belonging to Janice were also discovered hidden in the crawlspace of Jerry's house after the women's disappearances. He also allegedly told his former business partner that he was responsible for the deaths of both women. However, when Janice's case went to trial later that year, Jerry was found not guilty. After that decision, charges connected to Janice's disappearance were dropped. Jerry died in 2010 at the age of 67, but authorities continued to believe he was involved in both women's disappearances. In 2021, students from Michigan University's Environmental and Cold Case Programs began digitizing 5,000 old documents from both Janice's and Janice's cases. The WMU is the first of its kind, and students also helped solve the 1987 murder of Roxanne Wood in Niles, Michigan. Over the years, Janice's case has been looked at by investigators and reshelved, but during the pandemic, her son James, who was only two and a half years old when his mom went missing, decided he was tired of waiting. So he began researching his mom's case, and then the Michigan State Police reopened it in September 2022. James and Dina maintain that Jerry killed their mother and buried her body alongside Janice's. Janice's case is now recognized as an abduction homicide because Jerry died years ago. The investigators are still hoping to find Janice's remains so that she can be put to rest and James and Dina can finally have some closure. The Michigan State Police also are hopeful that advancements in DNA technology will assist them in the cases. In February 2023, investigators announced they had some major developments in both cases, but those details have not been released to the public. As of July 2023, neither woman has ever been found, and both cases remain unsolved. Kyle Thomas Rugg was born in Houston, Texas on May 27, 1994, to parents Les and Judy. Kyle enjoyed skateboarding, dirt bikes, and race cars, and was described as funny, 
personable, and full of life. They said he also wore his heart on his sleeve and was great with the younger kids in his family. He grew up in Katy, Texas, and graduated in 2013 from Maid Creek High School. At the age of 20, Kyle was recently kicked out of his parents' home and began living at his friend Mike's apartment. On the night of March 3, 2015, Kyle and Mike attended a party at a nearby Motel 6. The next day, he and Mike, along with two new friends he met at the party, went fishing at Lake Livingston, about 100 miles from Mike's apartment. For reasons unknown, Mike decided to drive his own vehicle to the lake, and Kyle rode with the new friends in their yellowish-tan two-door car. However, once they arrived, the new friends didn't want to pay the park entrance fee, so they found a smaller fishing spot that was free. After fishing for a little bit, the weather started getting bad, so Kyle decided to leave with the friends and told Mike he was heading back to Katy, Texas to pick up his car. After leaving, Kyle was never seen again. When Mike arrived back at the apartment, Kyle, along with his 2003 silver Hyundai, were missing. Over the next few days, Kyle's mother repeatedly tried to get in touch with him but was unable to. By March 7th, she finally reached out to Mike and learned that he hadn't seen Kyle in three days. After learning this, she immediately reported him missing. They began checking his social media accounts, phone records, and his easy pass, but none had any activity since he disappeared. They also searched for his car, but as of today, it has never been found. Searches were done, including by the Texas EquiSearch, who searched the state park area of Lake Livingston and other fishing areas, but were unable to find Kyle. Suspiciously, Mike claims he never knew the names of the new friends, but thought one might have gone by the name Josh. He then said they were Hispanic with a clean-cut look, wearing diamond stud earrings. He also thought one was around 23 years old and the other was 17. However, after telling the story, he refused to take a polygraph test. At this point, people have become suspicious of the whole fishing trip story and question whether the two Hispanic males even exist. It was also discovered that the last place Kyle's cell phone pinged was near the lake. However, Mike said that Kyle's phone was known for not holding a charge and he never carried a charger with him. Police have never been able to confirm Mike's story because Kyle didn't have a debit or credit card that could be used to track his transactions. About five years later, on January 21, 2020, law enforcement found human remains in a wooded area in Polk County while looking for some stolen property. Two years later, the remains were identified as belonging to Kyle Thomas Rugg, and it was determined that he was the victim of homicide. Unfortunately, that's where the case ends, and we are left with lots of questions. However, as of July 2023, this case remains unsolved. Joshua Javon Davis Jr. was born in New Brunfels, Texas on August 16, 2009 to Sabrina and Josh Sr. When Josh was 18 months old, his family lived in a mobile home in the 2600 block of Savannah Hill Circle in New Brunfels. At the time, his mother, Sabrina, was eight months pregnant. On February 4, 2011, his parents were hosting a party consisting of about 10 people, seven adults, and three children, including Josh. Just before 9 p.m., Josh would strangely disappear. He was last seen in the kitchen between 8 and 8.20 p.m. 
Josh was described as a very mobile toddler, and supposedly the front door on the mobile home didn't latch properly. Authorities initially believed he wandered off, so they conducted an extensive search of the neighborhood but found no sign of him. Strangely, tracker dogs couldn't even pick up his scent. Unfortunately, if he had wandered outside, he wouldn't have survived very long due to the 19-degree temperatures that night. Because they couldn't find Josh in the immediate area, investigators began to look into other possibilities that might have resulted in his disappearance. Josh's parents believed that Josh Sr.'s longtime friend may have kidnapped him. They said the friend left shortly before Josh disappeared and gave conflicting versions of events that night, including which door he used to leave. He claimed that Josh tried to follow him out of the door that night, and when he was told that Josh was missing, he never came back to help search. However, investigators have interviewed the man three different times and believe he left before Josh disappeared. However, that same man was arrested in Gonzales, Louisiana, and charged with aggravated assault with a firearm, aggravated criminal damage to property, and first-degree attempted murder in an unrelated case. Investigators theorized that Josh was possibly injured, either accidentally or purposefully, and then removed from the house before he was reported missing. Detectives firmly believe that one or more of the adults inside the home that night knows what actually happened to him. Investigators said they were able to confirm that Josh went missing 45 to 60 minutes before the family called 911. They said during that time, the family got together for a meeting and then removed all the illegal drugs from the home. However, Sabrina claims there was only a 10-minute delay in calling 911, and that was time spent looking for Josh outside. It was also reported that the family was giving the media and the community information that didn't line up with the facts investigators had. While members of the family that were in the home that night have been cooperative, investigators say that not everyone has been forthcoming. They are hoping that someone will come forward one day with the truth about what really happened that night. If Josh were alive, he would be 13 years old, but as of 2023, he has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Diane Marie Schofield was born on November 1, 1953, to parents Kenneth and Marie. She grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and attended Woodside Junior High and Lincoln High School, but dropped out after getting pregnant when she was only 15 years old. Her younger sister, Twyla, said their mother struggled with mental health issues, and Diane and her weren't very close. On August 7, 1969, 15-year-old Diane married Kenneth Lee Schofield, but divorced by the time she was 17. On April 23, 1974, Diane was arrested and charged with carrying a concealed 22 caliber pistol. Someone had given her the gun to avoid getting caught. She ended up being sentenced in January 1975 to five years in the Women's Reformatory, but ended up being placed on probation. Sadly, she lost custody of her five-year-old daughter during the whole ordeal. After being put on probation, she moved into an apartment on Cottage Grove Avenue in Des Moines and worked at local massage parlors as a masseuse and waited tables at the Totem Pole and Foozin' and Boozin'. 
On the afternoon of July 10, 1975, a parking lot sweeper for Warren's Steakhouse noticed an odor coming from a tan 1966 Rambler that was sitting in the parking lot. The lot was located at Southwest 20th and Porter and was used to store rental cars due to its proximity to the Des Moines airport. Concerned with what was in the car, the worker called the police. Firefighters arrived at the scene, pried open the trunk, and discovered a young woman's decomposing body. Investigators determined that the car belonged to Diane, and it was her remains found in the trunk. An autopsy indicated Diane had been bound and then strangled to death with a piece of cloth. Her killer then put her in the trunk and left her there for several days before ultimately being found. She was fully clothed in a green halter top and blue jeans, but her shoes were missing. Unfortunately, no fingerprints were recovered from the car. Robbery didn't appear to be a motive because she was still wearing her $200 digital wristwatch and several turquoise rings. After her death, her ex-husband, Kenneth, who was behind bars at the time of her murder, hanged himself. The medical examiner initially reported Diane had been dead for about six days, but later changed this to three days after learning that witnesses had seen her alive Monday evening, July 7th. With this new information, the examiner placed her time of death as sometime after 9 p.m. on July 7th. On July 1st, at around 8 p.m., Diane rented a U-Haul trailer from the Abco service station to move into her new apartment and return the trailer the following day. On July 4th, she gave William Smith, who had done time with her ex-husband Kenneth and his 18-year-old nephew, a ride home from a local beach. He said she dropped them off around 9.30 p.m. that night, and that was the last time he saw her. After dropping them off, she went to work at Dave Salem's Foozin' and Boozin'. Before getting off that night, she asked Salem for some time off, and then he never saw her again. After work, she was spotted at another night spot called So's Your Mother's. On July 7th at 10 a.m., Diane was seen buying $2 worth of gas at the same service station she rented the U-Haul from. The attendant on duty recalled that she complained about her car's taillights not working properly after removing the U-Haul trailer hitch and that another employee at the station fixed them for her. An attendant said Diane returned to the station at about 9.10 p.m. that evening to buy cigarettes and mentioned she was going to be late for work. When Diane failed to show up for work, 22-year-old Mike Killian reported her missing. He had known her for seven years and said he last saw her on Friday, July 4th at Clearwater Beach in West Des Moines. Mike said he believed more than one person was involved in her murder because she was strong and had trained in karate. Attorney William Cutmus, who represented Diane in her concealed weapon charge, said she told him several months earlier that she was asked to be a drug informant, but officers denied they knew anything about this. Her sister Twyla and her friend Amy Suave created a Facebook page titled Justice for Diane Schofield. The group hopes to find answers about what really happened to Diane. Twyla said she never understood why police returned her sister's purse, jewelry, and watch to her just weeks after the crime. She was told the towels used to strangle her sister were tested for DNA in 2010 and turned up nothing. She said she believed police still had her sister's diary, but she wasn't sure what other evidence remained. 
On the 50th anniversary of the murder in 2015, Twyla reconnected with now-retired Des Moines Police Sergeant Clarence Job to see if there was anything new he could share with her about her sister's murder. He said they believed they knew who the killer was and reluctantly gave her the suspect's name. However, there is no hard evidence to link him to the crime. Sergeant Job said he was so sure of the killer's identity that he even went to the suspect's home and told him he knew he did it. The man reportedly said he and his lawyer both knew they couldn't prove it and cursed him out of his house. Sergeant Job had continued to try to pursue the unnamed suspect as time went by, even going to the Polk County Attorney's Office twice with the case files, but was told there wasn't enough evidence to build a case against him. When the newspaper spoke to Sergeant Job, he said he had told Twyla the man's name because he was getting old and wanted to see justice for Diane. Twyla said her theory was that her sister was skimming money on the side from the owner of a massage parlor where she worked and that the owner grew angry. She said she didn't believe the owner killed Diane, but he might have hired someone else to do that. Sadly, Twyla passed away in January 2022, and the Facebook page, Justice for Diane Schofield, is now run by Twyla's husband, Bill Johnson. As of July 2023, no one has ever been arrested for the murder of Diane Schofield, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.